0: I'm going to make him an offer he can't refute. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid.
1: All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking.
0: Oh, what do you want to do there for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs.
1: Welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. I'm Trey Hooks, and with me as always is my co-host Blaine Dowler. How are you this morning, Blaine?
0: I'm doing well. How about you?
1: Good, thank you. This time around, we are looking at the 43rd Annual Academy Awards, covering films released in 1970, and the Best Picture winner of that year, Patton directed by Franklin Schaffner. Patton, based on the life of General George S. Patton, premiered on February 50th, 1970, and featured George C. Scott as General George Patton and Carl Malden as General Omar Bradley. The film's screenplay was written by Francis Ford Coppola, a name that we'll be coming back to in a couple of podcast times, and Richard H. North, based on both the biography Patton, Ordeal and Triumph by Ladislaus Fargo, and A Soldier Story, the autobiography of General Omar Bradley. Our plot synopsis comes from the fine folks at Wikipedia. The film opens with a scene of General Patton addressing an unseen audience of American troops intended to be the Third Army uh, before the invasion of France emphasizing the importance Americans place upon victorious role models, as well as his own demands that his men defeat the enemy by working and fighting as a team. The film then transitions to the first encounter between the German Africa Corps at Kasserine, where the second corps is delivered a humiliating defeat by General Erwin Rommel, whom Patton places in high regard as a well respected rival. As a consequence, Patton is placed in command of the Second Corps and immediately begins instilling discipline amongst his untested troops. Alongside the poor condition of American soldiers in the Second Corps, Patton also identifies the stubbornness of his British counterpart, General Bernard Montgomery, who constantly undermines American forces in order to monopolize the war glory. Patton's chance to prove his worth comes at the subsequent Battle of El Gattar, where Patton defeats the advancing German troops. The eventual Allied victory in North Africa prompts both Patton and Montgomery to come up with competing plans for the Sicily invasion. Patton's plan, drawn from reference to the Peloponnesian War, highlights the strategic importance of Syracuse. If it fell to an occupying force, the Italians would surely withdraw. Patton proposes that Montgomery capture Syracuse, whereas he will land near Palermo, then capture Messina to cut off the withdrawal. Though the plan initially impresses General Alexander, to whom Patton and Montgomery report, General Eisenhower turns it down in favor of Montgomery's more cautious plan that the two armies land side by side in the southeast, essentially relegating Patton to guarding the left flank of the British advance. Angered by the lack of progress being made, Patton thrusts west and captures Palermo, before beating Montgomery to Messina. Patton's blunt aggression sits poorly with his subordinates, Omar Bradley and Lucian Trescott. During a visit to a field hospital, Patton notices a soldier crying out of shell shock. Surmising that the soldier isn't actually physically injured, Patton slaps the soldier and threatens to shoot him for his cowardice and demands he return to the front line. Eisenhower demands Patton apologize to his entire command for the altercation. Though Patton obliges, he is stunned to find out that Bradley, not he, has been given command of American forces preparing for the invasion of France. With the invasion of Normandy due to start, Patton is placed in charge of the fictional First United States Army Corps as a decoy in London, the Allied consensus believing that his presence in England will tell the Germans that he will lead the invasion of Europe. At a war drive in Knutsford, Patton openly remarks that the post-war world will be dominated by British and American influence, seen as a slight to the Soviet Union. Though Patton objects to having done anything wrong, the situation has already spiraled from his control. The decision to send him home or keep him in England rests upon General George Marshall. Though he is not present during the D-Day landings, Patton is given command of the Third Army by General Bradley, who is now his superior. Under Patton's leadership, the 3rd Army sweeps brilliantly across France, but is unexpectedly brought to a halt when the supplies are diverted to Montgomery's ambitious Operation Market Garden. During the Battle of the Bulge, Patton devises a plan to relieve the trapped 101st Airborne Division in Bastogne, which he does before smashing through the Siegfried Line and into Germany. Germany eventually capitulates though Patton's outspokenness lands him in trouble once again when he compares American politics to Nazism. Though he loses his command once again, Patton is kept on to see the rebuilding of Germany in the post-war period. In a final scene, Patton is seen walking Willie, his bull terrier. Patton's voice is heard. For over a thousand years, Roman conquerors returning from the wars enjoyed the honor of a triumph, a tumultuous parade. And the procession came trumpeters and musicians and strange animals from the conquered territories, together with carts laden with treasure and captured armaments. The conqueror rode in a triumphal chariot, the day's prisoners walking in chains before him. Sometimes his children, robed in white, stood with him in the chariot or rode the trace horses. A slave stood behind the conqueror, holding a golden crown, and whispering in his ear a warning that all glory is fleeting and that ends our uh, synopsis of patton i will interject just because i don't think it was quite covered well enough in the synopsis omar bradley is a major character in the film as well as played by karl malden he is placed as a almost a second in command under patton when patton assumes control of the second corps and with his uh, more cautious nature as is revealed in the synopsis, goes on to eclipse and outrank and become Patton's superior. I don't know that that quite came through the synopsis, but what were your overall impressions of Patton, Blaine?
0: Um, This is another one of those films where the film will be made or broken based on the performance of the lead and George C. Scott delivers. So, yeah, this movie does well. It's another war film which again because it's trying to be historically accurate means it's v- the cast is very male dominated there's i i don't remember any women with speaking roles i only remember one scene that has women and they're just kind of a laughing audience while he's in london
1: yeah there's there's not really a female presence it is different than the other it is closer in spirit to Lawrence of Arabia in that it tries to tell the story of a military figure over a series of campaigns, you know, as opposed to the bridge over the river Kwai, which was about, you know, a particular or singular mission or objective. What I found different with Patton was, you know, unlike Lawrence of Arabia to where there was a strong supporting cast to support the lead. You know, Peter O'Toole had, you know, Anthony Quinn and Omar Sharif and Sir Alec Guinness all in strong uh, supporting roles. I I felt like other than Carl Malden as Omar Bradley, who don't get me wrong, uh, did a fine job, George C. Scott, had to carry this film alone because you really didn't have any one other person with any real screen time other than Malden.
0: Yeah, I mean, Carl Malden, Michael Bates as General Montgomery, Michael Strong as Brigadier General Hobart Carver, which, you know, as soon as I heard the voice, I'm like, oh, that's Dr. Roger Corby from Star Trek. These guys, they all show up and they do their jobs well. There's not a weak link in the cast, but the structure of the script says they're not carrying anything. They're just there to support the character Patton. And that's it. Like you said, Bradley gets promoted above Patton and, and ends up in charge. But it's not his story in any way, shape or form. Uh, the other thing that I noticed, most of the war films that we've seen have focused on the experience of the, the soldier. Like I said, you know, Lawrence of Arabia is probably the biggest counterexample where that's also the commander. But you think back to Alquide on the Western Front, Wings, a lot of those early ones, mm-hmm. it was about the people on the front line. Whereas this, it's about the commander, but it's not, it doesn't glorify him, but it exposes that he wants the glory. So he was doing some things so that he would get credit for it before somebody else did it and ostensibly it was so that the Americans would have a hero that they could back, but the American soldiers didn't necessarily want to be under his command because, like you said, he wasn't as conservative as Bradley, so I I suspect his units, even though they made greater gains in the war, they probably also experienced heavier losses than a lot of the others.
1: Maybe this was because of the Vietnam experience, and don't get me wrong, I I know war films... Um, We're still being made up to this point, but this, if you wanted to categorize this as a war film, this is a war film that's not about war. So, you know, it spends more time focusing on what did Patton think was the right strategy, and then they have a small montage skip scene to show you, and the war was fought. And then, here was the outcome, and here's what we had to deal with as a result of the outcome. It, in a lot of ways, it was more about the deci- decisions leading up to and the consequences of battles than about the battles themselves.
0: Yeah, and about his attitude. He, the way he's handled here, which could be an accurate picture of the man. I mean, just to, to connect the dots, the person that was played by Carl Malden, who works side-by-side with Patton and is the closest thing we have to a co-star, wrote one of the books that this is based on. So he should have a fairly accurate picture of Patton. He was close to him. And Patton genuinely seems to believe that he's got a destiny from God to win this war. And especially at the end when he said, yeah, we've been fighting the wrong guys the whole time. We should be teaming up with the Nazis to take out the Russians. I get why he didn't necessarily finish his career on the best of terms. So this is done, I don't, yeah, I, I think really it's less of a war film than it is a biography. But it's right. the biography of a man whose sole sense of self-definition is as a soldier and commanding officer. There is nothing else in his existence but leading these armies and America to victory.
1: And I I think it's mixed... And what I mean by mixed was, you know, I I didn't do exhaustive research, but I did do some background reading. And, you know, as with any adaptation, you know, there are some liberties. So, for example, the film makes it seem like Patton got impatient and didn't like being sidelined. So he decided to drive on to Messina. The reality is that Montgomery actually got bogged down, and Patton, because his forces weren't stuck, um, was ordered to go ahead to still meet the objectives. And, you know, I, the relationship between Bradley and Patton was perhaps not as cordial as presented in the film. So there are some who believe that by using Bradley's autobiography as, as a source, it perhaps tense the portrayal of Patton more in line with his opinions than what an unbiased observer may have thought.
0: Yeah, there's there's definitely potential for that, which happens often when you have these dramatized biographies. Sometimes it's hard to resist kind of leading a little farther one way to increase the drama. Right. If it show, especially if your purpose is to showcase a life And it's not a a short life, but you're trying to squeeze it. Two hours and 51 minutes is long for a movie, but it's short for a human life.
1: Well, and and it was short for this particular war, right? So, you know, the, the time period between the North African campaign to Normandy to, you know, actually setting foot in Germany was years, not, you know, days or weeks. So...
0: Yeah, I mean, the American involvement in World War II lasted about four years, whereas for most countries involved, it was six. Right? So we're looking at, still, each hour has to represent more than a year worth right. of real time.
1: So was this your first time seeing it?
0: It was, yeah. Yeah, I'm at the point now where there I've seen maybe half of the Best Picture winners from this point on, but I've decided not to watch any until I'm doing it for the podcast if I haven't seen them before. Although oddly in our groups of 10, you know, so this one going from In the Heat of the Night to Rocky, I have seen five of the six that we still have to discuss. But then when we get to the next batch, the only one I've seen recently enough to actually remember is Annie Hall. There's a couple others I saw. Three of them I've seen in theaters in first run, but you know, Kramer versus Kramer came out just before I turned two, so right. yeah, intellectually I know I saw it in theaters because my parents took us. I don't remember anything. I just know because they tell the story of. We can get it at the time, but yeah, there's a, someone gets injured, and the audience was disturbed because, you know, it's an injury, it's a high drama, and apparently there's me almost two years old shouting out to everyone, don't worry, it's only just ketchup.
1: It it was my first time seeing it as well, except for the opening scene, you know, in front of the flag backdrop, you know, I, in the past, in the past 30 years, it's probably fallen in importance. But, you know, as a kid in the 80s, if you saw something that included great film moments of the past, you know, 10, 20 years, you would have that shot of George C. Scott with the American flag backdrop. So I had seen uh, snippets of it. What did you think of the overall direction? Because this will win Best Director.
0: Yeah, a lot of it is the direction in this film. Yeah, there's some with the, the cinematography and the staging. But a lot of it is just directing the performances because so much of this really is the conversations that they're having. Like you said, it's about the decisions. It's about the thought processes. So whatever Schaffner did, he helped his actors produce some pretty great performances.
1: I agree. I I think the only trick Patton missed, and the synopsis doesn't make reference to this, but we have cutaways of the German high command and their opinion of some of the commanding officers and how they fluctuate as things go on. It may have reduced the role of Karl Malden somewhat. So, as I'm saying it, I'm thinking about why they didn't do it. But, you know, instead of having so many characters show up and say, Eisenhower thinks this, Eisenhower likes this, Eisenhower doesn't like this. It I wonder if the film would have benefited from having some cutaways showing those conversations and then us seeing the impact of those conversations instead of it always being a message delivered or some or you know some other general showing up and saying Ike liked this, Ike didn't like that.
0: It's possible. I mean, I wonder if the, the choice to do that was so they could hold back some of the reveals. Because we know Patton is sidelined for a while because what what the synopsis says is because he's outspoken. It's not just that he's outspoken, it's exactly what he's saying. And when Carmalden Malden says, okay, you're being reassigned to command this, and, oh, that's the decision I came to four months ago. And we find out later that it was Bradley who was resisting. If we were part of that conversation, we wouldn't have had that reveal.
1: That's true. True.
0: So, um, and some of it might be, because I was wondering at, at first why they didn't show Eisenhower. Uh, looking it up, he he passed away in March of 1969. And this film came out in December of 1969. So it okay. may have just felt like the wrong time to put him on film.
1: That makes sense. The one time I felt like Patton, as president in the film, got a raw deal was with the quote-unquote comments about the Russians coming out of the British war drive, at least as portrayed. I don't think he intended to give offense with what he said. Now, the second time around when he was talking about Nazism and how some aspects of American politics are not. So different, he, he may have been, I understand why people at the time didn't like it, he, he may have been a little bit more prescient than we would have liked, um, given recent events, but I, I felt like he did get a raw deal coming out of his uh, speech in Nutsford.
0: A little bit, yeah, it was, it seemed like a minor slip of the tongue until you point out that it, I don't know, his hand, for better lack of a better term reminded him to mention the Russians, and he didn't. But then later when he reveals that, no, he thinks the Russians are the enemy, we should have been going after. Yeah, he was definitely a a different person. You know, One thing that came crystal clear is that he didn't really care about the psychological and mental well-being of his soldiers. What mattered is essentially abusing them to become automatons and do what he ordered them to do, which I wish I could say is inconsistent with the way military leaders are generally portrayed, but it's just not. That does seem like a modus operandi for many of them.
1: This doesn't excuse it, and I'm not trying to excuse it. I think part of what was Patton's mystique, and George C. Scott does a great job of bringing this out, was ostensibly he put himself in the same danger that he put his troops in. You know, he was not, you know, typically ten column you know, this is kind of an analogy from a different kind of war, but he wasn't in the tent on the hill. He was down in the valley with the troops commanding from that point. And I think that's what kind of made him unique for the time.
0: Yeah, that is true. He was in the thick of it. Which they also highlight at the end when, you know, stones slip and an ox cart almost mows him down on the street. And he says, after all I've been through, imagine going down to an ox cart.
1: Which, the film doesn't cover this, but I looked it up. He he did pass away because of an automobile accident. So, I'm wondering if the ox cart was kind of a metaphor for what would eventually lead to his
0: death. Yeah, it could be, just to sort of not show that, but also highlight it.
1: Mm-hmm. I'll also just, you know, it's not something we speak out about a lot, but I will mention, while I wasn't familiar with it, while I could not have told you that I knew it before watching it, I quickly recognized the score while watching the film. So Mm -hmm. it has had some lasting resonance for me to be familiar with some of the refrains without having seen the film before.
0: Yeah, this is a movie that's heavily referenced. Like you said, I recognize the score, the shot of him coming out in front of the flag. I recognize not just you said from, you no, know, from the, the clips of the greatest moments, but from the homages. Like, I mean, Sesame Street's first feature film, Follow That Bird, starts off with an homage for that.
1: A uh, Space Jam has a reference to it when Bugs is trying to uh, marshal the Looney Tunes.
0: It's definitely an influential and recognized and respected film. Should we have any more specific comments about it, or should we move on to all the nominees and winners for the awards for this year?
1: No, I, I think my summary of this is it's a very good film. Because of the lack of supporting characters that kind of built up narratives and personalities of their own. I didn't connect with it as much as I will with other films. But it's watching solely for it's worth watching it for no other reason than to see George C. Scott's performance.
0: Yeah, this is definitely one of those major performances. So let's go through the other nominees and winners for the 43rd annual ceremony, which took place on April 15th, 1971 in the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in L.A., produced by Robert Wise and directed by Richard Dunlap. So, Best Picture, obviously Patton won, beating out Airport, Five Easy Pieces, Love Story, and M.A.S.H. Best Director went to Franklin J. Schaffner for Patton, beating out Federico Fellini, Arthur Hiller, Robert Altman, and Ken Russell. Best Actor, The winner was George C. Scott, playing Patton, beating up Melvin Douglas, James Earl Jones, Jack Nicholson, and Ryan O'Neill. Although Scott refused to accept the award because he doesn't like the Oscars. He was quoted as saying that it's a two-hour meat parade, a public display with contrived suspense for economic reasons.
1: And he told them in advance. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, you you probably don't want to, (laughs) you know. Uh, nominate or recognize me, so I give him full credit. He didn't blindside them with it.
0: No, and actually I'm looking here just highlighting over the, his character name of General George S. Patton with a picture of the real man. Uh, between Scott's natural features and the makeup, they did a, a good job. He actually looks like Patton. I wonder how it would have played out, I guess, one of the other actors who turned the role down and said it was the biggest mistake of his life to turn it down was Rod Steiger. Who I
1: I I can't say that Rod Steiger would have done a better job, but you know my affection for Rod Steiger, so that definitely still would have been a film worth watching. I, I think they could have gotten Steiger close to a physical approximation, but not as he didn't naturally look as much like Patton as George C. Scott did.
0: No, and Scott was at least the sixth that they talked to. Is, uh, according to the Wikipedia page under production, Lee Marvin, Burt Lancaster, John Wayne, Robert Mitchum, and Rod Steiger all turned it down. And uh, Charlton Heston was considered for the role of Bradley before they gave it to Carl, Carl Malden.
1: So I, I know this wasn't the first time that um, the award would be declined, but this uh, this kind of sets the precedent, right, Blaine? So like, when this happens, no one actually gets the award, but the Academy still considers, you know, George C. Scott may have declined, but he was the winner for the year.
0: Yeah. it just The statuette didn't go home with him, but he was the choice of the builders. So they don't give it to someone else just because the first person turned down the statuette. Uh, best Actress went to Glenda Jackson for Women in Love. Beating out Jane Alexander for The Great White Hope, Allie McGraw for Love Story, Sarah Miles for Ryan's Daughter, and Carrie Snodgrass for Diary of a Mad Housewife. Best Supporting Actor went to John Mills for Ryan's Daughter, beating out Richard S. Castellano for Lovers and Other Strangers, Chief Dan George for Little Big Man, Gene Hackman for I Never Sang for My Father, and John Marley for Love Story. Uh, we'll be hearing more about Gene Hackman in the not-too-distant future. Uh, best Supporting Actress went to Helen Hayes for Airport, beating out Karen Black for Five Easy Pieces, Lee Grant for The Landlord, Sally Kellerman for MASH, and Maureen Stapleton for Airport. Best Story and Screenplay Based on Factual Material or Material Not Previously Published or Produced. That went to Patton by Francis Ford Coppola and m h North. Beating out Five Easy Pieces, Joe, Love Story, and My Night at Mods. Best Screenplay, Based on Material from Another Medium, went to MASH, based on the novel by Richard Hooker. Beating out Airport, I Never Sang for My Father, Lovers and Other Strangers, and Women in Love.
1: So I I just did a quick check, Blame That is the first time Best Original, what we now call Best Original Screenplay was worded that way. And I think it was done so to include Patton in the category.
0: Yeah, I would not be surprised because it is weird to have the factual material put in with the stuff not published or produced.
1: Because the biographies that it was based on had, you know, already been published and produced.
0: Yeah, it's almost like they did that so that Patton could slip in there and not have to go up against MASH or Airport to the others. Right. Best documentary feature went to Woodstock, beating out Anurungen an die Zukunft, released an English language version under the title Chariots of the Gods. Jack Johnson, King uh, filmed record, Montgomery to Memphis, and Say Goodbye. Best documentary short subject went to My Interviews with Miley Veterans, beating out The Gifts, A Long Way From Nowhere, Olsen, and Time Is Running Out. Best live-action short subject went to The Resurrection of Bronco Billy, beating out Shut Up, I'm Crying and Sticky My Fingers Fleet My Feet. Best short subject cartoons went to Is It Always Right to Be Right, beating out The Further Adventures of Uncle Sam and the Shepherd. Best original score went to Love Story, beating out Airport Cromwell Patton and I, Girasoli. Interesting that the the Patton score that we've said has resonated and we recognize. Ended up not winning. Right. Best original song score went to Let It Be, beating out The Baby Maker, A Boy Named Charlie Brown, Darling Lily, and Scrooge.
1: And I think that the Academy made a big mistake there, if only because that was not the score to the awarding a score award to a concert documentary film. For the songs in the concert documentary film, I think goes against, I, I would argue that was not a score.
0: Or at least it's not original, because if they didn't do the documentary, all those songs would still exist. Correct. Yeah. So what, it should have gone to Charlie Brown? do 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 yeah. do 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 Or, you know, I mean, I haven't
1: seen the Babymaker darling L- Lili, but, you know. You know, Scrooge was another musical in the Oliver style. It may have been a contender. Or even Love Story was... Well, it won Best Original Score. Never mind. Yeah. But I I just... I'm glad it didn't set a precedent to where, you know... (laughs) Instead of scores, we're awarding... I don't think Madonna, Truth or Dare should be nominated for Original Score for the same reason. You know, I, I just... I felt like it was a slippery slope and could have set a really bad precedent for the Academy.
0: Yeah, that could turn into essentially all concert videos for popular bands could suddenly start taking that home every year. So best song original for The Picture went to For All We Know from Lovers and Other Strangers, Beating Out Whistling Away in the Dark from Darling Lily, Till Love Touches Your Life from Medron, the title track from Pieces of a Dream, and thank you very much from Scrooge. Best Sound went to Patton, beating out Airport, Ryan's Daughter, Tora, 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 and Woodstock. Best Foreign Language Film went to Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion, beating out First Love, Huabin, Pa sur la Chambre, and Tristana. Now, Best Costume Design went to Cromwell, beating out Airport, Darling Lily, The Hawaiians, and Scrooge. I want to point out again, Airport, Costume Designs by Edith Head. Best Art Direction went to Patton. Beating out Airport, The Molly Maguires, Scrooge, and Tora Tora Tora. Best Cinematography went to Ryan's Daughter, beating out Airport, Patton, Tora Tora Tora, and Women in Love. Best Film Editing went to Patton, beating out Airport, MASH, Tora Tora Tora, and Woodstock. And Best Visual Special Effects went to Tora Tora Tora, beating out Patton. So, the... Films with multiple nominations, Airport and Patton both had 10 nominations each, Love Story had 7, MASH and Tora Tora Tor each had 5, Five Easy Pieces, Ryan's Daughter, Scrooge, and Women in Love had 4 each, Darling Lily, I Never Sang for My Father, Lovers and Other Strangers and Woodstock each had 3, and Cromwell and Great White Hope each had 2. But the only films that actually won multiple awards, Patton won 7 of its 10 nominations, and Ryan's Daughter won 2 of its 4. The Academy Honorary Awards went to Lillian Gish and Orson Welles. The Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award went to Ingmar Bergman. And the Gene Hersholt Humanitarian Award went to Frank Sinatra. So the Honorary and Memorial Awards all went to very notable people this year.
1: Yes. But before we move on to Letterbox and IMDb, I will say it does not surprise me that Scrooge lost its four, particularly art direction and costume design. I was even surprised that it got nominated. Not that the art direction and costume design wasn't very good for the film, but the the producers of it were the producers of Oliver, and they essentially reused everything to reduce cost. So um, I could very easily see the Academy or the voters who vote in those areas being aware of that and saying we understand what it got not why it got nominated but we awarded this art direction 2 years ago.
0: Yeah, I could I could see that being being the case. So otherwise overall, how do you feel about the way the awards fell down this year and how they came out?
1: I haven't seen all of the nominees and we're we're in a more difficult period, and what I mean by difficult period is there are very few films that are sweeping, so we're entering a period where it's hard to watch two or three films if you have the time and see 15 nominees, (laughs) if you will. So I have seen Love Story very long ago, but I don't remember much of it. I've seen MASH and have watched it recently, and I watched Five Easy Pieces this month along with Patton just as a reference point. So we said the whole thing that holds uh, Patton together is George C. Scott's performance. So obviously, you know, no disagreements with him being best actor. I will admit while I acknowledge the quality of the film and the acting performance, this one left me a little bit cold. you know, having seen it, unless some, unless I'm doing it again for a similar project or something, like I, I don't know that I will watch Patton again within the next five years. Just as an example, I don't think it's my favorite movie out of the Best Picture nominees. That would probably be, MASH. I just found MASH more engaging. But that doesn't mean that that makes it the best picture. So I don't have a problem with Patton winning best picture. I, I feel like I can't put my finger on it. There's something about the way that Patton is structured to where it just isn't resonating with me the same way like Lawrence of Arabia does. I don't know if that's the fault of the direction or the fault of the screenplay and how the story was um structured. So should Robert Altman have won for MASH instead of Franklin Shafter for best director? I I think an argument could be made for that. Not having actually read the screenplays, can I say that, you know, Patton was a worse screenplay than the others? No. But I think if they were if they were in the same category, I don't know that Patton would have beaten M.A.S.H. as a screenplay.
0: Yeah, it's possible. For the ones I've seen, I've also seen Love Story a long time ago, too long to really talk about it sensibly. I think I saw it in the 1980s, mm-hmm. uh, because as a child in particular, I haven't seen it again as an adult, I, I should. I love What's Up, Doc, with Ryan O'Neill and Barbara Streisand. So when we were renting things, anything with Ryan O'Neal, I would be saying, yeah, let's check that out. So I know I've seen things like Love Story and Main Event and Irreconcilable Differences, but all when I was so young, I don't clearly remember them. I haven't seen Five Easy Pieces in a few years, and I'm almost embarrassed to say I've owned MASH for over a decade and haven't gotten around to it yet, and I really want to. So I'm not, I'm not in a position to say this should have won instead, but I would agree that watching Patton, I... I walked away from this saying George C. Scott deserves best actor, but I feel the best picture nomination came out just because George C. Scott was so clearly best actor. It felt like his performance because the entire film is patent and his performance, it's almost like his acting job makes it feel like the whole is is greater than the sum of those parts. And I think he propelled it into that category, you know, in a way that you know, had it been a, a Lee Marvin or or John Wayne, you know, had John Wayne been cast, I don't think it would have been a Best Picture nominee.
1: Oh no, Th- there there were definitely some folks on that potential casting list, and you know, that's always happens to where you're like, I can 100% see why, based off of that person's popularity at that time, a casting director would consider it. And I can see why it would have been the worst mistake for the film.
0: Yeah, there's always names thrown out there where the studios say if you can get that person, they're approved. Because the studio wants to approve it to make sure that their investment is sound. And there are some people that they will approve simply because they are popular enough to be bankable. This is why Richard Pryor was in Superman 3 when the Salkinds were saying, okay, here's what we want to do. We want to do uh, a Lex Luthor and Brainiac story for number three. And they got the list of people who were pre-approved. They didn't have to go through anything. And Pryor was on it. So they said, oh, let's take Pryor. Oh, but Brainiac has a lot of makeup, so let's not make him Brainiac. And just domino after domino after domino fell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know a lot of people who think that 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 made it one of the most profitable Superman films, but not one of the ones that's fondly remembered by people familiar with the source material. Yeah, so in any event, I don't know what I could single out as saying this would have been a better choice. But had Patton lost to any of those, I'd have been okay with it. Now, should we go through the Golden Globes? Yes. All right. So again, they separate Best Motion Picture by Drama and Comedy or Musical. They gave the Best Drama to Love Story, beating out Airport, Five Easy Pieces, I Never Sang for My Father and Patton. So they did nominate Patton, but it was actually Love Story that took it home. Um, For Comedy or Musical, they went with M.A.S.H., Beating out Darling Lily, Diary of a Mad Housewife, Lovers and Other Strangers, and Scrooge. Best Actor, George C. Scott for Patton. Um, Beating out Melvin Douglas, James Earl Jones, Jack Nicholson, and Ryan O'Neill. So that's a very similar list. Yes. And by very similar, I mean completely identical. (laughs) Best Actress went to Allie McGraw, beating out, or for Love Story, beating out Faye Dunaway for Puzzle of a Downfall Child. Linda Jackson for Woman in Love, Melina Mercury for Promise at Dawn, and Sarah Miles for Ryan's Daughter. And sorry, that's for performances in dramas. For Best Performance in a Comedy or Musical, Actor went to Albert Finney as Scrooge, uh, beating out Richard Benjamin from Diary of a Mad Housewife, Elliot Gould for MASH, Jack Lemmon for The Out-of-Towners, and Donald Sutherland for MASH. That's interesting.
1: Not having seen the majority of films where people were nominated for actor for or supporting actor for Oscars. I kinda held my tongue about being a little surprised that nobody got nominated for MASH. But in best actor comedy, maybe it's because nobody expected Albert Finney to sing and dance, but I am surprised that he beat out Golden Sutherland. And I love Scrooge. It's not a slight against the movie or the performance. But I am just surprised that one of the other two didn't win in that category.
0: You know, I I haven't seen it recently enough to actually, you know, voice an opinion and say, oh, I think this did it. But I, I will take your word for that. It could be that they're, they were not expecting Finney's performance. It could also be a simple case of them splitting the vote.
1: Uh, true. Very true.
0: Yeah, so it might have been that more votes were for performances in M.A.S.H. than anything else, but it was just divided. For Actress in Comedy or Musical, that went to Carrie Snodgrass for Diary of a Mad Housewife, beating out Julie Andrews for Darling Lily, Sandy Dennis for The Out-of-Towners, Angela Lansbury for Something for Everyone, and Barbara Streisand for The Owl and the Pussycat. Now, Best Supporting Performance in a Motion Picture, Drama, Comedy, or Musical... Supporting actor went to John Mills for Ryan's Daughter, beating out Chief Dan George for Little Big Man, Trevor Howard for George, or for Ryan's Daughter, George Kennedy for Airport, and John Marley for Love Story. And supporting actress came out as a tie. So Karen Black for Five Easy Pieces and Maureen Stapleton for Airport Tide, beating out Tina Chen for the Hawaiians, Lee Grant for, for The Landlord, and Sally Kellerman for MASH. Best director... Arthur Hiller won for Love Story, beating out Robert Altman for MASH, Bob Rafelson for Five Easy Pieces, Ken Russell for Women in Love, and Franklin J. Schaffner for Patton. So again, Patton was nominated but did not win. Best Screenplay Love Story won, beating out Five Easy Pieces, Husbands, MASH, and Scrooge. Best Original Score went to Love Story, beating out Airport, Cromwell, Scrooge, and Wuthering Heights. Best Original Song, Whistling Away in the Dark, from Darling Lily. Beat out Belt of Little Fouls and Big Halsey, from Little Fouls and Big Halsey. Title Song, from Pieces of Dreams. Thank You Very Much, from Scrooge, and Till Love Touches Your Life, from Madron. Best Foreign Film in the English Language, went to Women in Love, from the United Kingdom. Beating out The Act of the Heart, from Canada. Bloomfield, or Bloomfield, from the UK, and Israel. One Soldier's Gamble from Japan and The Virgin and the Gypsy from the United Kingdom. Best Foreign Language Film went to Rider on the Rain out of France, beating out Borsellino from France and Italy, The Confession from France, Customer of the Off-Season, France and Israel, and Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion from Italy. New Star of the Year Actor went to James Earl Jones from The Great White Hope. I didn't know that he would be a new star after already appearing in dr strangelove but anyway um, he beat out a soft diane from promise at dawn frank langella from diary of a mad housewife joe Namath from norwood and kenneth nelson from the boys in the band a new star of the year actress went to carrie snodgrass from diary of a mad housewife beating out jane alexander from the great white hope anna calder marshall from pussycat pussycat i love you Marlo Thomas from *Jenny* and Angel Tompkins from *I Love My Wife*, so, yeah, that's Joseph William Namath, the, the NF or yeah the NFL star, who was in the new Star of the Year category,
1: for, for James Earl Jones. And don't get me wrong, we've we've often gone back and forth as <clears throat> around you know, what does up and coming or best mean for the Golden Globes, but. Not counting short films, that was his fifth film, and it was the first one where he was the lead. Well, I don't need to tell you anything about Dr. Strange Glove, (laughs) because I know how much you love it, but The Comedians, he was about 10th build, and in The End of the Road, which had... Which IMDb list, you know, maybe 10 people in the cast. He's around 4th or 5th build. so.
0: Okay, so it might just be the first time he was given that, that lead. Um, going into their television awards, Best Show Drama went to Medical Center. So it beat out The Bold Ones, Marcus Welby, MD, The Mon Squad, and The Young Lawyers. The Best Comedy or Musical went to The Carol Burnett Show beating out The Courtship of Eddie's Father, Family Affair, The Glen Campbell Good Time Hour, and The Partridge Family, Best Actor in a Drama Series, went to Peter Graves for Mission Impossible, beating out Mike Connors for Mannix, Chad Everett for Medical Center, Burt Reynolds for Dan August, and Robert Young for Marcus Welby, MD. Best Actress for a Drama went to Piggy Lipton for The Mon Squad, beating out Amanda Blake in Gunsmoke, Linda Crystal for The High Chaparral, Yvette Mimieux for The Most Deadly Game and Denise Nicholas for Room 222. Best Actor in a Comedy or Musical Series went to Flip Wilson for The Flip Wilson Show, beating out Herschel Bernardi for Arnie, David Frost for The David Frost Show, Merv Griffin for The Merv Griffin Show, and Danny Thomas for Make Room for Granddaddy. Best Actress in a Comedy and Musical Series went to Mary Tyler Moore for The Mary Tyler Moore Show, beating out Carol Burnett for The Carol Burnett Show, Shirley Jones for The Partridge Family, Juliet Mills for Nanny and the Professor, and Elizabeth Montgomery for Bewitched. Best Supporting Actor went to James Brolin for Marcus Welby, M.D., beating out Teague Andrews for The Mod Squad, Michael Constantine for Room 222, Henry Gibson for Rowan Martin's Laughing, and Zalman King for The Young Lawyers. Best Supporting Actress went to Gail Fisher for Mannix, beating out Sue Ann Langdon for Arnie, Miyoshi Umeki for The Courtship of Eddie's Father, Karen Valentine from 222, and Leslie Ann Warren for Mission Impossible. Um, I don't have a whole lot to say about the TV awards aside from how much TV has shifted, because it's clearly that TV shows, in many cases, were just vehicles for the star. When you look at the Insert Name Here show... Yeah,
1: you've got... You're in this interesting period in TV to where you still have... like. The Mary Tyler Moore show, for example, was kind of a throwback to uh, the 50s and early 60s, where you had star-led sitcoms. Most of these, the blank shows, are the variety shows that became so popular in the 70s. So the fl- Or talk shows. So, like, you know, the Merv Griffin show, the Carol Burnett show, the Flip Wilson show, all of them are more variety sketch shows than, like, scripted tele... Sketch shows can still be scripted. Than, like, a scripted sitcom or drama.
0: Yeah, it's 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 definitely a bit of a shift. But I get what you're saying. It's not... They're naming it after the star because the characters you see in the first half may not be the characters you see in the second half or any week thereafter. Right. You're saying it, it is a sketch. So shall we move on to how the nominated films played out on uh, Letterboxd and the IMDb these days? Yes. All right. So going to Letterboxd first. Of the nominated films, Patton is the highest rated, or sorry, it's second to Five Easy Pieces. So Five Easy Pieces gets a 3.85 out of 5 on average, which makes it 27th of the year. And Patton is 39th with a 3.80. And there are 72 films per page of results. And those are the only two I see on that first page. So letterboxed users would, seems like they would have given it to five easy pieces instead. Uh, Going through the IMDB, Patton is number one of the nominees. It comes in at 10th of the year with a 7.9 score out of 10. So the equivalent from, uh, from Letterboxd would have been a 7.6. And then going through, looking for the other nominees, I'm seeing Torah, Tora, Tora and Scrooge in the mid-20s. Uh, Ryan's Daughter, there's MASH at 35. There's Five Easy Pieces at 37, with I Never Sang for My Father in between. A Love Story comes in at 42. And then the next highest rated film is Airport at number 108. So that is buried well down the list of 199 films for the year. Behind things like Catch-22 and The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, directed by Billy Wilder. The Out-of-Towners with Jack Lemmon.
1: Are are these higher than Airport or higher than all the nominees together?
0: Those are higher than Airport. Here's Love Story at 77. That's the one with Alan McGraw and Ryan O'Neill. So I think the one I saw let me go back to double-check that title that I saw here. Yeah, A Love Story at number 42 is a different oh. film, directed by Roy Anderson and Sophie Kylan. It stars in it with Rolf Suman. So yeah, it's two teenagers falling in love over the summer. So the actual Oscar-nominated love story is number 77. The Great White Hope is 79. Landlord is 78. Cromwell is at 80. Uh, there's a couple of Pippi films, there's A Man Called Horse, there's Joe, Fruits of Paradise, Watermelon Man, Too Late the Hero, Rio Lobo, and The Phantom Tollbooth is number 100. So all of those are above Airport, which comes in at 108.
1: What What's above Patton? Is it all foreign film? or?
0: So the top 10 here on the IMDb, there is a, a foreign film, I think it's, yeah, it's Jibon Theke Nea. It's a political satire of Bangladesh under the rule of Pakistan, metaphorically. Then we have Brigada Diverse Intra in Actune, which follows the communist Romanian militia. One Song a Day Takes Mischief Away, which is directed by Krasimir Golik and stars Franjo Majetic, Marjana Bohanek, Rejla Basic, and Mio. Oramovic, so I'm saying again, another foreign film. The Adversary, directed by uh, Satyajit Ray, starring Dirtuman, Chaturjee, Asgar Ali. Five Days and Nights in the Forest is number five. Also directed by Satyajit Ray, same director as The Adversary. And same rating, 8.1. That's about a, a group of Calcutta city slickers. Uh, King Lear, a Soviet adaptation, directed by Grigory Kozintsev, is number six. Hope, directed by Serif Gorin and Yilmaz Guni, the story of an illiterate man in his family whose existence depends on his income as a horse cab driver. How I Unleashed World War II, is about the adventures of an unlucky Polish soldier, directed by uh, Tadusz Chmielewski. And then number nine is Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion, which won the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film. So yeah, Patton is the first American film to make the list on the IMDb. I'm going through Letterboxd. Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion is actually the highest rated film of the year, period. That's number one. Then we have a Led Zeppelin concert film, This Transient Life, The Conformist, Le Cercle Rouge, Doctor Who Inferno. They have that extended cut, so it qualifies. Hope, the end of the track, confession, but again, Days and Nights in the Forest, Heroic Purgatory, Doctor Who, Spearhead from Space, Witch Hammer, Earthlight, Donkey Skin. Yeah, again, we're seeing The Boys in the Band. That one might be English language. Yeah. Boys in the Band, directed by William Friedkin, is probably the other notable English-language film that rates above it. Okay. So yeah, we are reaching the point where really the local American bias is really starting to show through in the Oscars because there's a lot of highly regarded films that are just not in the English language ranking above these that were not mentioned. So did you have any other comments about those? or
1: No. It's always... I always like to ask, and you're right, you know, maybe this kind of shows another change in the sign of the times. Not that foreign films don't always pop up, but you know, I remember back when we were in the 30s and 40s, we may say Bride of Frankenstein was higher ranked on Letterboxd or whatnot. And, and we're we're hitting a period to where it's not so much that the Academy is necessarily out of touch with what others are saying but when you take a broader more global when you take a broader global view it was probably not the best film of the year but when you look at what the remit of what the academy was judging the letterbox in IMD w- IMDB would say. Whatever rankings exist as of today would say that the Academy probably got it right.
0: Yeah, that is that is what we are seeing now. Some of that might be simply because as we approach the modern day in these, our sensibilities of the voters haven't changed as much. Yeah. So we're getting more in line with that, at least to some degree.
1: Well, and this may not have been, we are not yet to the modern blockbuster. Genre film has always existed, but maybe 1970. Because that's, th- that's normally what pushes something up, right? We'll have a 1968, great example. Planet of the Apes in 2001, definitely both above Oliver on everybody's critical ranking list. Maybe nothing of that caliber from a genre perspective came out in 1970.
0: Yeah, that is a possibility. So I I can't think of anything from 1970 that stands out as a genre film. And looking at the list, I'm not seeing them either. I personally enjoy the Phantom Tollbooth scene as a child, but the average IMDb score of 6.7 out of 10 is fair. It's not being ignored. It's just a pleasant movie that is not in the stratus of Best Picture. So the one with the most fantastical elements that seems to be there is probably Scrooge. But it's one of those ones where people claim, oh, it transcends the genre. No, it's just a good example of the genre. There's no such thing as transcending the genre. So who would you recommend this to?
1: You know, I I think it's a good film for World War II buffs. I would say if you enjoy war films or World War II in particular, it's a good film. If you like George C. Scott, it's a good film. You want to have an... You you referenced this earlier. Have an interesting double feature if you have a whole afternoon. Watch uh, Dr. Strange Glove and then watch Patton, right? (laughs) To see two different sides of George C. Scott. But, like, I... If you're a fan of... Biographical Profiles, I I, I don't know that I would recommend it. Like, I don't think this is... I I know that I'm jumping ahead. Like, you know, if you're a fan of Lawrence of Arabia or Gandhi, I wouldn't say watch Patton, if that makes sense. I I don't think it's... I don't think it's a great film as a biographical drama. I think it's a great film as, um, as a historical context of an important figure in World War II. As I'm thinking about it, as we wrap up, maybe part of what it would have needed for me, Blaine, and it's possible that all of this was boring, right? But you don't see anything that made Patton who he was in this film or what led Patton to become the man that he was in this film. There was no road to it. It was here as Patton fully formed.
0: Yeah, and there wasn't a whole lot of growth really from him. No. Because you're right, the, the pattern we see, all he's really learned, he briefly, when he is not commanding an army, he changes enough to get put back in that role. But then there's an immediate reversion to the man he used to be. So it's not a lasting change, it's the, at no point did he think he was wrong for doing what he did. He just felt, they are wrong, but I need to play the game. So that they could put me back in, and I do what I want, and prove that I've been right the whole time.
1: Yeah. So I guess you know I would, I would put this more in the context of Frost Nixon or Quiz Show, to where yes, it focuses on an individual, but it's more about the events and the period necessarily than a deep introspection of the individual. Than as I mentioned, you know Lawrence of Arabia or Nixon.
0: Yeah, this, this is showing Patton for what he was and it's, I don't get the feeling that there is a lot of depth to him. He is defined as a, in his own mind, he sees himself as a soldier and tactician. And that's the extent of it. And it's not that that makes him unique. You know, that speech he gives in front of the flag, that's him saying, this is what we're all secretly like underneath. He's just open about it. So, you know, when the guy's covering Shellshock, who's clearly a different person, he says, oh, no, you're just a coward. That's it. It's like there's two kinds of people. There's the soldiers and there's the cowards. And he, there's comments that, you know, he wrote a letter to that that soldier's mother saying, well, he should have been slapped. He should have been dragged out and shot. But he just has absolutely zero tolerance for people who are not soldiers. And he's mentioned a few times he felt he had a divine destiny given by God to lead America in this. I. So it, it is an interesting piece and it, yes, he was a huge part of why the Allies won World War II. So I, I have to appreciate and respect his role in that because a Nazi victory would have made the world a very unpleasant place. But a lot of that is undone at the end when he says, yeah, we were fighting the wrong guys. He was just fighting for the sake of fighting. So that, to me, that kind of undermined it. So I, I would recommend it to anyone who's, who's coming into it looking to see the type of person that it took to win that war. Because that's what we're seeing. There's there's no growth from him. It is more of a historical document. And it reveals things about Patton that you may not you may or may not want to learn, depending on your attitude towards him and the military in general. So really the the main reason I would say to watch this is to see George C. Scott's performance. Because that is by far the best aspect of the film and it's but even on a script level, that's the most important aspect of the film. If they had a poor actor in that role, we wouldn't be discussing it in this podcast at all. Right. You know, it, it might, well, maybe not at all. Maybe it would have been, you know, one of those ones that we mention only in the art direction or costume design. And just say, yeah, it was nominated in these categories and then move on. But it would not have been a part of that best picture category with anyone else or any lesser performance as as the title character. Now, next month's podcast is a little different in that regard. Not as different as we like. It's still a lot of it is built off the the central performance. Next month, we are going to be looking at The French Connection, which beat out A Clockwork Orange, Fiddler on the Roof, The Last Picture Show, and Nicholas and Alexandra. So this could be a very interesting discussion coming up next month.
1: Yes, uh, Nicholas and Alexandra had. Um, I'm I'm not sure if I'm gonna be able to watch it, but it had some strong Doctor Who tie-ins. It has both Michael Jason, who was the Valyard, and Tom Baker in it as Rasputin.
0: These are some strong contenders. So part of it that you know we were talking about Patton this year. There's not a tremendous amount. Well, I mean, we got. I guess, Love Story, we've got Nash, but some of the other ones seem to have been forgotten, whereas all five of the nominees from next year are still a part of the conversation of the film buff groups that I'm in on social media. So it'll be interesting to see how many, and I'll try to make time to watch A Clockwork Orange as well. That one is going to be very tough to watch because we're recording these well in advance, so our next recording is going to be August of 2022, In my day job, I am a teacher, so July and August, I'm off. But this August, we'll also have our daughter's first birthday party. So (laughs) while my wife is back at work full-time, I'm the full-time daddy. And A Clockwork Orange is not a movie that's easy to watch with a child in the room.
1: Definitely. You know, another film that I will recommend before we go... Blaine is a 1949 film called Battleground. I had watched it um, during one of our previous um, prep sessions because of where it had ranked on a letterbox list. It's directed by William Wellman and stars Van Johnson and has Ricardo Montalban in it. You know, they make reference of... Patton coming to the rescue of the 101st Airborne Division, Battleground is a dramatization of that from the perspective of the 101st Airborne Division. And it's a pretty good film, too. So if people hear the podcast and watch Patton and um, are drawn to it because of the historical aspect and want to see something related, I'd recommend Battleground from 1949.
0: Okay, all right. So there's some other recommendations, and then again, join us next month when we discuss the French Connection. Thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said, life was like a box of chocolates.
1: You never know what you're going to get.
0: Please, sir, I want some more.